This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. All right. If we can return to our seats, please. And uh, as you're sitting down, uh, grab a Bible, if you would, and turn to Colossians 3. Last week, we talked about the secret of the Christian life. This week, I'm talking about dress for success. I'm in a whole new zone on titles. Someone will come to our website and see these titles. They have no idea what is going on here. So I'm not really trying to throw curveballs. Uh, but this is all about how you dress as a believer. Uh, and I'm using that as a metaphor because I'm standing in a T-shirt. But one, one Sunday a year, I get to preach on a T-shirt, and that is VBS Sunday. So excited about uh, uh, the Time Lab this week. Um, Colossians 3, if you don't have a Bible, if you will uh, grab one, there's one under the seat in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, that's our, our gift for you. You can just take that one with you. Um, and I'm going to go, here's how it's going to work today. I'm going to go word by, I'm going to go syllable by syllable for the first few verses. And then I'm going to overview the second half of the passage in about five minutes. So if you have a Bible, you'll really be able to track word by word because we're going to essentially come close to looking at each word at the beginning. So here's what we've been talking about. Let me give you a little bit of background if you haven't been here. This church in Colossae, they're new Christians and Paul is writing to them and there's some false teaching that's that's kind of uh, going around in the city, around the church that could really tempt them and, and um, uh, trip them up. And so what they're hearing is, yes, it's, it's fine to believe in Jesus, but you need Jesus plus something. So some are saying you need Jesus plus the Old Testament law. And so we've got some laws. You've got to obey those. If you want to be godly, if you want to grow in godliness, you've got to have Jesus plus these laws. Other people are saying you've got to have Jesus plus visions, like visions of angels. And you've got to go on about your experiences. So Jesus is great, but you've got to have this experience too. Other people are saying you have to have Jesus but you also have to do some things. I mean, you've got to do some harsh treatment to your body, some extreme, extreme uh, type self-discipline that would be painful. To If you do that plus Jesus, then that's really how you grow. And Paul is saying to them, no, it's very different. Paul tells them the, the secret to growing is to become who you already are. It's to uh, to be aware that you died and rose with Christ and how appropriate it is. I don't know how to operate the time lab. I'm not certified to do so, but uh, how appropriate it is to have a time lab because that, so there's two things. There's extreme fasting or there's the time lab. Those are the two ways. There is angelic visions or there's the time lab because daily we have to get in the time lab. Don't even know how it works, but we have to get in there and you have to go back to Jesus's death. You have to go back to Jesus' resurrection because what Paul says is that you are in Christ. He doesn't just say he died for you. He says that elsewhere in the New Testament. But in Colossians, he says you were in Christ when he died. You are with him. It's so integrated. It's not, it's not only that he died as our substitute sort of outside of us. That is true. But he's saying you are so intimately connected to the work of Jesus that becoming a Christian means You died with Christ and you rose. So it's like you went back in the time machine, 2,000 years, you died and rose with Christ, you're brought back to today, and then now I live a new life because of that experience. That's what he's saying. That is the key to growing. It's growing in understanding your identity, who you are in Christ because of what he's done for you, and then living in the power of that experience. Um, And so 
It's a wonderful, wonderful truth. So last week we, we saw Paul was saying, look, since you've got a new life, take off your dirty clothes, put off, strip off. That's what he's talking about. Strip off the clothing of your old life, which is immorality, anger, slander, malice, all this kind of stuff. And today we're going to see how to dress for fruitfulness, uh, how, put on your new clothes based on who you are. So that's what we're going to read. Uh, verse 12 through 17. This is Colossians 3. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if, if, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and thankfulness with thankfulness in your heart to God. And whatever you do, In word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at this word, we pray that you would make it real. Uh, We know it is true, so grip our hearts with the truth. Make it real to us and give us a vision, Lord, for how to relate to you, how to relate to others, and how to grow in godliness in Christ by the power of the Spirit. We ask this in your son's name, Father. Amen. Amen. Okay. The language of put on is the language of clothing. So when he says put on then, he's like saying dress in these clothes. That's That's how the language is used in Greek. So the passage begins to put on new clothes. And the key is put on these sort of new clothes in line with your identity, in line with who you are. And who are you? Well, you put on your new clothes in line uh, with what God has done for you. And he says that at the beginning, put on then, but before he says what to put on, there's this parenthetical statement that's so important as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Now let's get back to the clothing, compassion and hearts and kindness, etc. But so he starts with put on this new clothing in line with who you are. That is the difference with what the Bible teaches about growing in godliness and what these false teachers, the false teachers were saying, start with, this is what you have to do. And Paul says, no, you start with, this is what God has done. This is how you start. What has God done? Well, he's chosen you, he's declared you holy, and he has loved you. That's where you start. You start with something done for you. Growth in holiness is never detached, never separated from what Christ has done for us. It is connected there, and that's why we always have to go back to the cross and resurrection. Jesus died for our sins. He rose, and when we believed in him, as I said earlier, we died and rose with him. This is the gospel. So now you are new if you're a believer in Christ. You are in him. He is in you. You are with him. He is with you. This is the language of the New Testament. He is the vine. You are the branches. Apart from him, you can do nothing. Okay, so we're connected. It's our connection in Christ is so key here. And we're to live a lifestyle motivated by the gospel, what God has done for us. 
That's where we find power to live for the Lord is in connection with what he has done for us. And this new life that we have in him, it shows up in a lot of ways. It shows up in the way we relate to God. But the passage we're looking at today, it shows up in the way we relate to others. And so really what this passage is teaching us is that we're to treat others as God has treated us. That's really the emphasis here. Understand how God has dealt with you and then deal with others based upon that. So the, the golden rule is do to others as they have done, un, as, as you would have them do unto you. Do to others as you would have them do to you. But Jesus says, I give you a new commandment that you are to, to love others as I have loved you. Um, and so it's based on how God has treated us that we treat others. So those are the two things I want to talk about today. How has God treated us? And then based on that and connected to that, how are we to treat others? First of all, how has God treated you? What does he say here? Put on these new activities, these new actions, these new attitudes, put them on as God's chosen ones. He's saying to the church and he's saying to you as a Christian, you are chosen. And some of us need to get that out of the debate, philosophical realm, and get it in our hearts. You are chosen by God, elected in love. He set his love on you, and you need to allow that to rest on your heart. It'll change you. One of the most powerful antidotes to legalism is understanding that I'm chosen in Christ by God. Because legalism says, do these things and you'll be accepted by God. That's what legalism says. Do these things and you'll be accepted. You'll be loved. You'll have God's favor. Do these things and you'll be accepted by God. But if you go back and go, God chose me. Ephesians 1 says, before the foundation of the world, before there's even the world, God chose you. If you're a believer in Christ, you know God chose you. So how in the world are you going to do something to win God's acceptance if before the entire universe was created, he had already set his affection on you? He had already chosen you. What are you possibly going to do to earn his love if before you were even conscious, God's choosing was set up on you. This way too often is a doctrine of controversy and debate, which is used as like, what team are you on in the body of Christ? Which, which, what's your view of being chosen? And when it remains in that realm, we, it's gutted of its power. The power of the doctrine of being chosen is the power of the comfort, which comes to know, I wasn't looking for God, but he came looking for me. I wasn't inclined towards God, but he set his heart and his love on me. It is a comfort that empowers us to then, what does he say? Relate to others with compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness. Your identity drives your behavior. And if your identity is, I, I'm not accepted by God, he didn't choose me, I need to work to win his approval, then you will walk in legalism. But if your identity is, man, I couldn't do anything and God chose me, now you are ready to respond to him in love and to love others. That fuels humility. 
if, humil- if, I didn't, if, if I know Christ purely because of what he did for me, and it's not my own doing, then my face should be on the ground saying, what am I even doing here as a worshiper of God today? Why am I not experiencing the things that Leroy talked about earlier in his testimony? The blindness, the darkness. There's one reason I'm not in blindness and darkness right now, and it is the grace of God. He chose me from eternity past. So this wakes us up to say that motivates humility. How in the world, if I'm living in that identity, could I be proud? What do I have to be proud of? When I'm walking in pride, which I do, when I'm walking in pride sinfully, I've got my eyes on me. I'm not saying, hey, before the foundation of the world, you didn't do anything, buddy. You, you did nothing. He had set his love on you before you were even created and chose you. That's humbling. That makes me meek when I think about that. That makes me gracious towards others. We should be the most, if we believe this, put on then as God's chosen ones. That's the same language he would use of Israel. They were the chosen people of God. Now he's using it for the church. As God's chosen ones, if we live in that identity, it will make us very different people. And, uh, and, it, and it should show up in humility and love ultimately. Next, he says, you are holy. So before you put on these actions, uh, realize who you are. You're chosen and you are holy. Remember how Paul addressed the Colossians at the beginning of the letter. Colossians 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers. Saints. He calls them all saints. The term is holy ones. And so his very identity, he starts the, the letter to the church, and he does this frequently, saying, here's your identity. You're the holy ones. I mean, we're so uncomfortable with that. If I got up here and greeted you, besides sounding a little strangely religious this morning, if I greeted you, welcome, holy ones. You're like, well, well who's, he, who's he talking about? I know the people in this church. He, he must be talking about somebody else. <laughs> That's what Paul did. I'm writing, hey, holy ones. We'd be uncomfortable with that. And if we're to the degree we're uncomfortable with that, that's the degree we don't understand the Bible and our identity in Christ. Holy ones. Declared holy. And I'm not saying our actions are perfectly holy. Only Christ is sinless. But that's our identity because in Christ we are treated. How does God treat us? We're treated as holy. He looks at us in his son and has favor on us. Holy ones. They need to hear this because they're hearing that holiness comes through extreme things. Holiness comes through legalism. And so he needs to tell them, no, holiness comes through Jesus, and that's your very identity. You are saints. God's declared us holy and righteous. Living a holy life is never rooted in trying to earn holiness, but it is rooted in living out your identity as one whom God has already, by grace, declared holy. That's how we grow in holiness. It's the people who are striving to win God's acceptance in some way that they are striving for holiness to be accepted by God rather than already being accepted for God, now striving to obey him and be who he's called me to be. Those are two very different positions. He says also that you are loved, be loved, or beloved. I don't know which is right, but I didn't look it up. Beloved, beloved. Um, I I did go to college. When I was in college, Ginger and I were in college, there was a, a man in the church, a distinguished man who referred to everybody as beloved. Hey, beloved. So that was definitely religious and odd, but it is in the Bible. Uh, dude always called me beloved, okay? Uh, but it is in the Bible. He meant, he meant beloved by God. 
So I'm just going to call it loved. It means, do you know you are loved by God? God's love is overwhelming. And so some of us would be uncomfortable if I said, hey, chosen ones. Because you'd be like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. That, that sounds like, is that Calvinism? What is that? He said, he said election in the church, and it wasn't even November. What is that? So some would be freaked out by that. If I said holy ones, a lot of people would be freaked out. If I said God loves you, you'd be inclined to agree with that. But really, if pressed, we'd be going, yeah, but there's still something. It's hard to rest in that for many of us. God's love is overwhelming, and he wants us to know his love. He wants us to believe it. I would say he wants us to feel it in a sense, feel it in our soul in a sense. I'm not saying every moment of the day emotionally we're going to feel the love of God, but but I, I do believe there should be a fundamental sense in our core being that we live out of the richness of God's love for us. Christ died for us, and that's where we see his love. First John says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son as a sacrifice. He used the word propitiation, which means a sacrifice that absorbs the judgment of God. So he, uh, it's not that we loved God, but he loved us and gave his son as a sacrifice. That's where we see love, amazing. It makes all the difference. I heard someone this week say, not someone from our church, but I heard someone say uh, this week uh, that they didn't feel good about themselves, which is understandable. We all can relate to that. They said they didn't feel good about themselves, and so they really had a hard time loving others. And so the idea was, I can't love you if I don't love me. And that's not where the Bible starts here. The Bible doesn't start with love other people, and you can only do that by loving me. The Bible instead says Christ's love, not self-love, Christ's love is the foundation for us to love others. And when I feel, know, understand, grasp Christ's love for me, I will have an accurate self-esteem. I will have an accurate esteem of myself. I will have an accurate view of myself because I will view myself, my identity primarily as loved by God. How wonderful is that? And when I'm loved by God, I'm then free to love other people. I'm then free to love other people. It's not rooted in self-love. It's rooted in Christ's love for us. You won't love well if you don't grasp how God loves you. So before telling us how to treat others, he reminds us, how have you been treated? Oh, you've been chosen. You've been declared righteous based on nothing you did, but based on what Christ did. And you're loved. That's where he starts. And Many of us could be uncomfortable at that because they go, wow, he's saying all those amazing things. I just kind of want to be told, like, what am I supposed to be doing? We also want to jump there. And, and sometimes the idea, it's counterintuitive because the idea is that, well, if you tell people all of that stuff, then are they really going to obey the Lord? I love in Sam Storm's book on Colossians, we have this, we've had it out there for sale a number, we've sold out twice on it. So I don't know if we have any more yet, but many of you have bought it. Um, but in this section... This is what he writes about God's, before he tells them to be compassionate and kind, he tells them, you're chosen, you're holy, and you're beloved. This is what Storm says. If you tell people that God already has chosen them and already consecrated them and already loves them, don't you rob them of any incentive to be holy? 
Shouldn't such blessings be held forth as a reward for obedience? The proverbial pot of gold at the end of the rainbow of diligence and effort and meticulous observance of God's rules? No, far from undermining holiness of life, the apostle believed that these blessings undergird it. So telling people these blessings doesn't undermine holiness, it undergirds holiness. It is precisely because you were chosen by God and beloved that you must heed Paul's exhortations. It is as God's elect, sanctified, beloved people that Paul now commands, put on compassion, put on humility, put on love. Paul's design in describing the Colossians and us with such exalted language isn't to lull them into spiritual slumber and moral indifference, but to shock them so to speak, with the stunning realization of who we are in Christ. He's determined to awaken them to the awesome task of living a life that honors the Lord and distinguishes them from the ways of the world. I can almost hear him shouting, people, do you have any idea who you are? Elect, holy, beloved, and do you know who's responsible for this? God, not you. Here, then, is how you are to live. Be compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patient, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. So I want to shout with Sam Storms, with Paul, and ultimately with God, people, do you know who you are? Because once you understand how God has treated you, then you are ready for the second part, how to treat others. And so he gives this beautiful list of how to treat others, starting with having a compassionate heart. A compassionate heart. The King James Version, if anybody's reading that here today, you'll notice it doesn't say compassionate heart. It says, put on bowels of mercy. I'll let that sit for a minute. But uh, put on (laughs) bowels of mercy. Uh, The idea was that the emotions come from within. And so the image is, that's, that's the image of it. It's, we would say a heart. We don't tend to speak of bowels as the place of our emotions. We speak of the heart, but it's the same idea. It's internal. This emotion emanates deep within. It means displaying a tender heart based on God's love, his election of you, his setting you apart as holy, setting you apart as his uh, consecrated. Therefore, from a heart have deep mercy towards others. The ancient world was a merciless kind of a place, especially to those in need. It wasn't culturally necessarily part of the culture to treat the sick or the aged or the mentally ill with care and respect. Um, And so oftentimes people on the outside were really on the outside. We We have societal safety nets where we live that care for folks who are in those types of conditions that they can't care for themselves, but not so much in the, in the uh, ancient world. And that's where the gospel changes us because the gospel came in and gave Christians a sympathetic heart who then became known as those who had compassion and cared for those in need. It became a fundamental part of who they were, Christians in the early church, but they were distinguished that way because they had experienced the love of God. God was compassionate to me, and so I want to be compassionate to someone else. So who in your life today needs God's compassion? Who is it in your life that needs the mercy? They need to experience the mercy of God. 
if you're in their life, it's at least possible that God wants them to experience his mercy through you. Because mercy is not just a concept. Compassion is not just a concept. It's a hands-on heart and communication towards others. And it's based on God's compassion towards us. Similarly, similarly, we're called to put on kindness. So based on what God's done for you, have compassionate hearts. Put on the garment of kindness. Romans 2.4, if you're not unfamiliar with the Bible, this might be a surprise to you. Romans 2.4 says, God's kindness leads us to repentance. Repentance is turning from our sin and following God. So many people think God's holy anger leads us to repentance. And certainly God's anger towards sin, his righteous anger towards sin, is a wake-up call. But what ultimately draws us and leads us to God is his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. That's really why we're drawn to God. That's why we're singing and loving him today. Yes, he is holy and demands and deserves our worship. But it's his kindness to us that draws us and leads us. We've been called by kindness to treat others in the same way he treated us. One author defined kindness as the gracious sensitivity to others that comes from genuine care for their feelings and their desires. It's what does is, what is someone else desire? What do they need? What, what, are, what are their feelings about something? And then in turn, to be motivated with a gracious sensitivity. I love that language, a gracious sensitivity to others. That's kindness. God was gracious to us. Humility. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility. Humility was not respected in the ancient world either. Humility was con- uh, sort of uh, looked on with contempt. Yet it is one of the chief graces of the Christian life. Philippians says that Jesus humbled himself. God himself was humble. Jesus is humble. Jesus humbled himself to death on a cross, the Bible says. Hey, you're only sitting here as as a believer in Christ with the Spirit of God living in you. You're only in that position because God humbled himself. Think about that. Jesus left heaven, humbled himself to take on our sins. Uh, Humility doesn't mean, as someone has said, that I don't know where this originated, but I, I see it quoted all over the place, but humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. So Jesus didn't come saying, oh, I feel so bad about me. No, he's perfect. Okay, he wasn't like, I'm such a worm. I, uh, that's a false humility. Jesus was humble. It wasn't that Jesus thought less of himself. He, it, it, he thought of himself as less than anyone. He thought of himself less and thought of the glory of God and laid down his life preferring others. He preferred others to himself. That is humility. Humility is avoiding self-exaltation, putting others before ourselves and thinking of ourselves less. It's often viewed negatively. So is meekness. That's the next one. Meekness is viewed very negatively. And in a culture that at times will assign certain characteristics as masculine or or feminine traits, and biblical characteristics should be seen in in both genders, you know, uh, men and women are called to be gentle. Men and women are called to be courageous in Christ. So you you don't take uh, these sort of things and say, well, that's really a feminine characteristic and that's a masculine but I will say this, many people would think meekness, man, is a man, what man wants to be. But he, he is the, I love that guy, so respect his meekness. Jesus was meek. 
Paul says, if you know God's loved you, if you know God's chosen you, if you know he's declared you to be righteous, that'll show up in relating in meekness to others. And we don't know how to process that often. Legendary college basketball coach, infamous college basketball coach, Bobby Knight, not known for meekness, once said, and if you know Bobby Knight, this is great. Bobby Knight once said, the meek may well inherit the earth, but they rarely get rebounds. That's what he said. Now, that is a misunderstanding of meekness. It has nothing to do with basketball. If Jesus wanted to get rebounds, he would have gotten rebounds. I assure you, as God, he could have done whatever he wanted to do. So that's not it. Another person said, the meek will inherit the earth, if that's okay with everybody. So being meek isn't being overly deferring to everybody that's not having an opinion, Never, oh, I don't want to get a rebound, I'm meek. This is not meekness. Meekness is strength that is governed by self-control. That's what we don't see in oftentimes in leadership in our our day. We don't see strength governed by self-control. We see strength parading as strength. And that's not what Jesus did. That's not biblical godliness towards others. Meekness reserves strength as Jesus did It's power under control used for the good of others. It has nothing to do with rebounds. It has to do with with ultimately at points dying to myself for the glory of God and the good of others. It's, It's monitoring and governing what I could do in terms of what would be better for other people. It's how should I govern myself in the service to God and others? In my family, what does it mean to be a meek husband and a meek father? In my job, what does it mean to be a meek employee as a male or a female? Doesn't mean, oh, I don't ever want a promotion. Or, oh man, I'm just meek. No, that's, that's pride, that's self-focus. Meekness is governing yourself. It's at times, you know, I don't have to say something right now. I don't have to uh, post something right now. I've got thoughts I want to say to my boss, I want to say to my coworker, I want to say to uh, my neighbor, but meekness means by it, the spirit of self-control, I don't have to do that. I don't have to throw a chair on the basketball court uh, when I don't get my way. Nothing to do with rebounds. Patience is the other one. So it's, it's given to patience. Once you know how God is related to you, how has God treated you? Think of how God forbears with people for century after century after century. He forbears with us. He forbears with you and with me. Sometimes we can be tempted to look, I can, be tempted to look at another person and say, when are they going to change? It could be somebody very close to your spouse. It could be somebody in the church. It could be another Christian you know at work. When are they going to change? In exasperation. Is, is that God's attitude towards me today? I'm not saying there's not a place to correct someone and say, repent. There's a place for that, clearly. But this attitude of hurry up and change everybody around me. If that's what I feel from God, that's what I'm going to put on other people. We exercise patience with others when we demonstrate a profound understanding of grace. How long has God waited on me and stuck with me faithfully? my whole life. How long has God waited for me, waited on me to change my act and has loved me, worked in me, come alongside me, empowered me? 
there's perhaps no moment when you demonstrate you have a greater grasp of grace than when you are patient with another Christian. Because that's how God has been patient. That's how God is related to you. Patience looks forward and says, you know what? Hey, everybody, God is on the throne. God is faithful. We will get there. We will get there. God will accomplish his work. The story is not over. And here's what I want to show you that matters. Has you ever had someone in your life that related to you that way? On the other hand, have you ever had somebody that's related? Come on, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. I mean, how many times you go, yes, that is so helpful. Thank you for the, con- the constant judgment. That's what I really desire. Could you just constantly be down my throat all over me? Because that is really communicating how God's working to me right now. Or have you ever had anybody that said they would correct you? They would call you to repentance? I'm just telling you what the passage says. I'm not telling you what everything in the Bible says. There's a place to correct, call for repentance for sure. But have you ever had somebody that even when you fail, they stick with you? And have shown you amazing patience. If, they, if you've had that, I guarantee you'll say that communicated the grace of God to me. And that motivated me to stay in the game and not give up. I read this week about a kindergarten teacher. And these are the grades that she gave her kindergartners. She didn't give A, B, C, D, and F. I don't know if everybody gives that anymore. I mean, we did, heard somebody say we did growing up. If you failed, somebody said, we wanted you to know so clearly that you were a failure that we skipped a letter. A, B, C, D, skip a letter, you failed. (laughs) You know, that kind of a deal. And uh, so I don't know what your school gives for grades or whatever, how we're all viewing it. But this is what this kindergarten teacher, she had three grades. She gave the parent, told the parents about the kids. You got an M, that meant you mastered the material. You got a G, That means you were on grade level for the material. Or you got an N. That meant not yet. That's powerful. I mean, what a perspective. I mean, really, if you don't have it all figured out in kindergarten, is it over? You've got, no, you don't have it. Not yet. Not yet. No, you can't solve an equation. Not yet, you know. It's not all over in kindergarten. And, and, and we need the not yet perspective already. Already we're new in Christ. Already we're declared righteous. Already God has changed our character and isn't changing our character. But we're not yet in heaven. We're not yet what we will be when he returns. We're not yet our full maturity. The not yet grade is so powerful because it doesn't say you're doing wonderful in all of your actions. It's saying, hey, we got some room to grow, but I believe you will. That's patience, and I'm with you. That's the grace of God. We're also called to bear with one another. That really relates with patience. Everything I said about patience, that's verse 13, bearing with one another. Next, if one has a complaint against one another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Could it be any more clear that how God treats you is the power and the basis for how you treat others? Could it be any more clear than what your identity is in Christ is how we are then to relate to others, that we behave and live out of our identity? He says, God has forgiven you, and so in the same way, forgive others. What does that mean? My identity is forgiven. Before the Lord, I am forgiven all my sins in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so that gives me the power, the motive, the sense of, Lord, if I'm looking 
vertically for, and, uh, and meditating on my forgiveness, then when someone sins against me, it's going to look very different horizontally. But if I'm just looking horizontal and there's no vertical perspective, then I'm going to be trying to get vengeance at everybody, payback, one-upping everybody. Somebody said that much of the ground that Satan gains in the lives of the Christians is tied and traced back to unforgiveness. I believe that. There's a very spiritual war going on in all of our souls. And unforgiveness is a wide open door for the enemy to destroy us. It doesn't destroy the other person. If you are unforgiving towards someone else, you're harmed more than they. It eats us up inside. And because all of this is a kind of one another, bear with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgive each other. This is all, this applies to unbelievers too, but this is all church stuff right here. He's talking about how do you relate to the people in the church? I want you to relate differently. You should have a different set of clothes on based on your identity. And they should be the clothes of bearing with one another, forgiving one another as you have been forgiven. It eats away at us to, to, to lack, to, to be unforgiving, but it's freeing to forgive. And the motivation and the power for forgiveness is getting in touch with God's forgiveness of us in Jesus. I've been forgiven a greater debt by God than anybody's debt against me. Nobody can sin against me in the way that I sin against God. Why? Because he's perfect. And I have sinned against him countless innumerable times. He's perfectly loving and I have sinned against him a lifetime. No one has sinned against me a lifetime and I'm not perfect. No one has sinned against me like I've sinned against God and he's forgiven me. I'm going to be brief on these last sections that I mentioned. So now we're going to get the overview. This is the big, oh, I'm sorry. He meant one more, one more before we get the big overview. Um, Verse 14, above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. That's the ultimate. I don't know if that's the ultimate garment or that's the belt. It holds it all together. Or that really pulls that outfit together. I don't know, you know, what kind of dress for success. But the love is the main garment, however you want to. He doesn't give us the details of the metaphor. However you want to metaphor that out. The, lo- the love holds the whole outfit together. It pulls your clothes all together is love. Love. The big takeaway is that you are loved by God. How can he say love is the key to all of the ways we relate to others? How can he say that? Well, because in verse 12 he said, you are beloved. That's how it works. It's always tied to what he's done. Okay, now I'm going to go through the last three sections fairly quickly. They are the, um, he's going to talk about the peace of Christ, the word of Christ, and the name of Christ He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That's what he says in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. This isn't personal peace for decision-making. This isn't, I don't know if I should do this or that. I got a personal peace about it, and this is my verse. No, this is about, and that's how this is used sometimes. This is about relating with others. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body. This is about how we're relating with others. The word rule is a word that we would use today for umpire. It was used of someone who would, in essence, uh, make judgment calls in sporting events. And so he's saying, let the peace of Christ be the umpire of your heart. What does that mean? Well, you've got Christ in you, and he's calling balls and strikes. What's right? What's wrong? And the, the way you determine what's right and wrong with your actions is, how am I relating to one another, and will this promote peace? Let the peace of Christ 
be, determine what's right or wrong because you're called to one body. So I need to ask myself, is it loving? And I need to ask myself, is what I'm saying or doing going to promote the peace and love and character of Christ? If not, I shouldn't do it or say it or whatever. If it is, then I should act. We're called in one body, and the peace umpire calls balls and strikes as to should I do this or that. He says, let the word of Christ, verse 16, dwell in you richly. It's been said, for the peace of Christ to rule, the word of Christ must dwell. Let the peace of Christ rule, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. He's saying, you all be filled with the word of God. And we're going to talk about this this next ministry year, which starts in September. This is going to be a major theme for us next year. It's going to be the word of God and applying the word of God in our lives. Um, But this is what he's saying. The word of God is to dwell. We're to think about it, read about it. The word lives in us because Christ lives in us. Meditate on it, apply it. Um, The next thing he talks about is Uh, singing. So he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So when he talks about corporate worship, he talks about the word. When they're together, he talks about singing. Let me make an, uh, give you an update, which is not a real application of this text, but it gives me an opportunity to take word and singing and say something about them together. We want to put those closer together in our worship services, um, and we want to wed them a little bit more. Currently, they're both in the same service with a period of announcements, which separates them. And uh, so beginning in two weeks, we're going to shift our worship uh, service order, our liturgy, the pattern of our liturgy, we're going to make a change and we're going to do our announcements. We're glad you're here. You're a guest. All that. We're doing that at nine o'clock. And then we will on a normal Sunday sing and we'll still have 60 seconds to dismiss the kids and we're right into the scripture. There's not going to be a break. We're going to go from singing. You can still greet your neighbor and get your kid to class. And then we'll have already had the announcements and everything and boom, we're going right into the word. So this verse this would be really bad exegesis, I said. And we came up with that from this text. No, this text doesn't say you have to do those right together or else we would have been sinning for the whole history of the church. But uh, we're going to do that. We think it would be helpful. So be here at 9 if you want to know what's going on in the life of the church. Uh, please be early because we're going to tell you, here's what's coming up, here's what you want. So if time machines are working. That all happens at the beginning and not the middle of the service, and you don't want to miss who would want to miss a time machine. So we want to see our word and, and singing connected as much as we possibly can. That's a shift we're making in two weeks. If we treat others as Christ treated us, then we will need his word to dwell richly, we'll need his peace to govern our actions, and we'll need his name to be central. The last thing is the name of Christ. I did a whole message on uh, 317. It was the first message last August in the Gospel for Everyday Life series. So if you want to hear about that, we did a whole message on how this applies to all of life. I'm not doing that today. I'm doing this is how it applies to the church because that's what he's talked about largely, one anothering up until this point. But then he goes universal and says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Based on what God has done for you as holy, beloved, what else? Uh, holy, uh, chosen, holy, and beloved, based on what God's done for you. Now you turn and you live all of life for his glory. Everything you do, whether it's your eating, your recreating, your working, your corporate worship like this, your family activities, your hobbies, whatever it is you do, it's all because God chose you, loved you, and um, 
and works in you, lives in you. Now all of life is lived for his glory. So he takes it from these various things and he goes broad and says, everything you do in the name of Jesus. But that doesn't start with one day saying, you can't just pull verse 17 out of the paragraph and say, hey, I live all of life for God. It starts with, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, now live all of life for God. That's the foundation because of what God has done for us. Now it's our joy to live all of our life for him. If this is hard for you to grasp at all, I would recommend spending the next number of days, whatever it takes, on verse 12, just starting your day, ending your day. God, I have no idea why you chose me. I don't even understand all the philosophical ramifications, but it says that I'm chosen. I believe that. Thank you for choosing me. God, uh, you say I'm declared holy. I'm holy. I look at my life. I don't see that. I know I'm growing in holiness. Uh, but you see me in Christ. Lord, I receive that, that you see me in Christ. Lord, you love me. I, I don't love me. Other people don't love me at times because of my actions. Uh, I'm struggling with how could you love me? But Lord, by fa- I'm going to think about what Jesus did for me. That is the proof of your love. I repent from thinking you don't love me, and I believe I receive what you've done for me. It would do some of us good to not primarily focus this next week on just forgiveness and compassion. Uh, it, would, it would do us well to take a few days and just live out, live in the mindset of what is my identity, and then turn and say, Lord, help me apply each of these in my life. And, um, and we'll have opportunities today to do that, uh, to express compassion and kindness, love, humility, meekness, patience. Um, we'll just have opportunities to express patience. Some of you are, I'm dismissing you now. Some of you are going to go pick up your kids. In 30 seconds, you will get to be patient with somebody right now. This this isn't isn't ethereal or theoretical. Some of you right now are going to get to express patience and love. Let's, Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.